0: Welcome to our continuing 2018 Educational Webinar Series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Specialist for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Steven Bittinger, an attorney with Nexon Prusit, and healthcare practice group. Steven has represented physicians across multiple disciplines, home healthcare agencies, nursing facilities, medical groups, medical facilities, and medical consultants in Medicare and Medicaid appeals, RAC audits, ZPIC audits, federal regulatory termination and exclusion proceedings, false claims act defense and prosecution, healthcare litigation. He has assisted numerous physician groups, medical corporations, and medical product manufacturers with strategic growth plans, successions, and transactions by assessing the reimbursement health and medical entities. Stevens healthcare team has developed unique strategies for responding to defense of RAC, ZPIC, UPIC, and major payer audits and appeals that have led to collaborative work with government regulators and healthcare associates and healthcare law firms across the country. He has also served as Reimbursement Counsel for Healthcare Transactions to determine risks associated with potential recoupment of post-payment claims. A copy of the slide deck is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box of your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your Paycom CEU Certificate will be emailed to you from Paycom following the broadcast. There is no need to request it. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. Stephen, go ahead.
1: Thank you very much, and I um, appreciate the opportunity to present again. Uh, I've, I've been fortunate to develop a strong relationship with First Healthcare Compliance uh, and, and had the opportunity to work with a number of different providers in different situations uh, through these educational experiences. Um, So today we're gonna talk about my crazy practice. So I am a healthcare reimbursement attorney and what I like to nutshell that with is that I live and breathe the law that surrounds the healthcare revenue cycle. Um, So all the different regulations, contracts, legal positions, that involve presentation and payment of claims and what can happen afterwards, um, including the credentialing uh, for, all of the, for all of that cycle. So today we're gonna to talk about um, something that is new in my arena. Um, it, our bread and butter is audit defense, and, and most of our work uh, across the country is against uh, the federal auditors uh, the contract auditors and so we're going to talk about a a new form of federal contract auditor called a UPIC today and it is something very unique um, that that we are looking at how it's going to unfold Uh, we have a number of these cases active uh, but there are elements of the UPIC review that are unlike anything that's happened before in the audit arena. So uh, I'm going to try to make something very complicated and dry, as entertaining as possible. So you'll have a copy of this presentation, I apologize if I skip a few details, um, but I'm going to try to give you the real deal uh, from my experience in in this practice. All right, so our goals for today, Uh, we're gonna review the purpose and objectives of CMS's UPIC program, you know, why did this program happen? Uh, We're gonna understand the implementation, basically timeframes and rollout and what's going on across the country right now. Uh, We wanna understand the focus of the UPIC program, try and dive in on some real details, all right? And then most important for me, is giving people some practical know-how as they walk away. Uh, so we're gonna talk about you know, what are some of the tactics and operations of UPIC auditors, and what are some fundamental audit defense and basic legal rights in audit defense? You know, what, what can you walk away with that will help tomorrow, um, help prevent these type of major problems? And, uh, and so I'm glad to bring some of that opportunity. All right, so we're going to do a little bit of history, and, and most people on this call probably have some level of information and knowledge, uh, but I'm going to move through it pretty quickly. So I got into this practice when the recovery audit contractors, the RACs, came rolling out um, in the 2000s, and uh, the, the RACs were independent contractors. In their, basically private companies that uh, were hired by CMS to recover improper payments on an errors and omissions basis, and they were paid on a contingency fee. So the bottom line truth is the more problems they found, the more money they recovered, the more money they made. So um, I'm always suspect of motive. Uh, Also, the the other major division is uh, quality improvement organizations. Uh, This is comprised of healthcare quality experts, clinicians, and consumers with a focus on improving the quality of care. There's really two kinds, Um, the beneficiary and family-centered care. They manage all individual beneficiary complaints. And the quality innovation network. These are data-driven initiatives uh, that promote best practices for better care of beneficiaries. Now the QIOs I don't normally get mixed up in unless we have a very large provider, hospital based, um, because there's some important elements of what you know we can provide to assist in that arena. The majority are the of our work is in the integrity or recovery divisions. So we're going to talk about the predecessor to the UPICS, and that is the Zone Program Integrity Contractors, the ZPICS. And so a lot of people on this call may have heard of the ZPICS. Um, Basically they're the wolf, all right, they're the fraud and abuse auditors uh, who have been scorching earth, (laughs) particularly in the uh, private practice arena uh, for the past four years. So a little bit of history. HIPAA created the Medicare Integrity Program or MIP. Um, MIP's primary purpose uh, was to help deter fraud and abuse, and they began to hire the independent contractors for en- enforcement. Uh, 1999, CMS' uh, first try at this was the PSCs, the Program Safe Contractors, um, and, and I got to tell you they weren't very successful. So. In 2003, the Medicare Modernization Act um, came out, and it was much broader and robust, and it was predominantly targeted on the fee-for-service industry and um, created your MACs that would oversee the seven program integrity zones of the ZPEC. So from 09 to 11, the ZPICS had seven zones focused on program integrity, with quotes, that's fraud and abuse investigation, um, on Part A, B, DME, uh, home health and hospice, and Medicare-Medicaid data data matching. Now, important note here is that um, Part C and D uh, are overseen by uh, a Medicare drug integrity contractor or Medic which is Health Integrity um, that's a single national contract not no zones in different areas there uh, but Zpix and Medic work collaboratively uh, with the Center for Program Integrity which is uh, CPI at CMS and uh, I I know most of the I know some of the primary Uh, individuals over there. We've gotten to know each other a lot over the years. The ZPIC for uh, the northeastern jurisdiction where a lot of you are located right now is Safeguard Services LLC. And so uh, people may have heard of Safeguard and it's really important that you, if you're ever contacted by Safeguard, to ask what contract are you working under? Uh, Are you contacting me in the ZPIC capacity? because that entails a whole different legal arena. And I've had a lot of cases with Safeguard over the years. So uh, ZPICs are targeting providers that are statistical outliers from their peers based on uh, services billed. So do you have a flat line that looks like you're not making medical decisions? Or do you have an anomalous service compared to similar providers that makes you stick out? And and I I say this because, you know, most lawyers have another lawyer on the other side of a matter that's their primary opponent. Well, my primary opponent are the data miners that work for the insurance companies because they identify patterns, assert that those patterns mean something. And then I and my team, we crunch that data and we try and say no listen the, the story you think that tells is very different so z are using uh the threat of reporting potential fraud and abuse and i i say quote in threat because they have they do they do report to the oig uh, the department of justice or the fbi but that scary ability um, gives them a lot of leverage, and a lot of providers have paid a lot of money back that isn't necessarily fraud, waste, or abuse, uh, just to reduce the risk. Um, I also call shadow reporting, so uh, ZPix have the ability to open a case, uh, or basically hand off information from their investigation to the OIG. Um, or other investigative agencies during the course of the audit Um, and you don't have to be notified of it which is uh, a little frightening all right Um, ZPICS began to really shift towards uh, from Part A to home health and hospice um, and Medicaid Part B and DME uh, around 2011-2012 now, uh, an important threshold is we're talking about the evolution of uh, healthcare billing fraud uh, over the over the past, I'll say, 10 years. 10 years ago, um, most of your healthcare billing fraud cases involved what I'll call old fraud. All right, where we're billing for services um, where there were no qualified providers. Um, there were, you know, blatant violation of supervision regulations, um, billing under an NPI of the provider who didn't bill the service. You know, the, the old billing for dead people—that um, was old healthcare fraud. The new standard, and I just threw one case in there as an example, uh, is a fraudulent pattern. And this case is kind of um, is, is is unique, and we have a, many more of these cases coming along. Um, where the fraud, the fraudulent conduct was a provider ignoring notice of a disputed coverage position and continuing to bill or perform the service, um, despite that notice. And so, um, in this case, we, we had a, a provider that was put on notice, and we'll talk about some of what that is, uh, that their billing for that service in the in the way that they were uh, was inappropriate and he continued anyway. And that was his intent, that was his mens re that uh, they based the convic- conviction on. All right, so let's cross that bridge with the history into the UPICS, all right? Uh, the United uh, Program Integrity Contractors and in, in UPICS are very different. Um, UPICS are the new generation of uh, CMS's Fraud Auditor. Um, They have actually began implementation, uh, Advanced Med in the Midwest started actually late 2017 and we've had a number of cases there, Um, but there's other contractors in different jurisdictions that are just getting rolling in 2018. Uh, they were The UPICs were formed as a part of the Comprehensive Medicaid Integrity Plan, uh, or CMIP, to wrap all federally fund- funded integrity reviews into a single audit. We're going to break that apart and what all that means, um, but that's a very big deal. So they were formed in response to a projected $119 billion increase in Medicaid spending Uh, from fiscal year 2014 to 2018 and quick side note on that fiscal year is that the look back period for federal reimbursement in an audit is six years so if you if you get an audit in 2018 they will be looking clear back to 2012. Now part of my uh, the irony in my arena is that the government is doing their very best to you know, save Medicare dollars in the healthcare industry, um, but yet CMS awarded a multiple year, 10 year, 2.5 billion dollar IDIQ, and yes, I had to look that up. Uh, that is a contract for indefinite delivery and indefinite quantity. To these UPICS picks to support their work I would love a contract for 2.5 billion dollars that doesn't have a delivery date or a quantity of what they're supposed to do that's just amazing that's that's brilliance of our government at work um, <laughs> now um, uh, real quick here specific to your region and 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 you can Google this or reach out for the other regions, but um, the contract for the Northeast region, which is Connecticut, Delaware, Maine, Massachusetts, Maryland, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Vermont, and DC uh, has been awarded to safeguard. Uh, a contract bidding dispute has delayed implementation, uh, but it's expected to begin in, in the middle of 2018. So. Um, a couple of the contractors that were z got in a dispute over Safeguard being awarded the UPIC contract But I believe that as far as we know from public information from the government has been resolved and we're anticipating Safeguard getting underway in the Northeast All right objectives of the UPIC um, These are the six big purposes Uh, To simplify and streamline, all right, increased federal spending in in the UPIC program will heavily influence state control over Medicaid program. Now, if anybody um, on the call works for Medicaid, I mean no offense whatsoever, Um, I'm just going to make reference to some real facts, Um, but the reality is that as, as difficult as a time our federal programs are having with uh, preventing fraud waste and abuse roughly 10 percent of every dollar is is improperly paid uh, the Medicaid programs across the country historically have a much higher waste percentage closer to 20 or 25 percent of every dollar and so those are extraordinary problems in our healthcare system so the the, the, one of the main goals of the UPIC is to bring those together because your, medi- your federal funding underlays the Med- Medicaid program and that affects the whole system. Second major obje- objective, identifying fraudulent providers. Uh, the UPIC will collaborate with state agencies to identify and remove fraudulent providers. And so this means you know state exclusion lists, all across the country, united with the OIG exclusion list, um, and accountability. Number three, shared accountability. Federal and state will have shared accountability for developing and delivering cost-effective health care to Medicaid beneficiaries. Uh, Pretty much that means federal leaning on state. Number four, fraud preventions uh, through provider screening, periodic revalidation and temporary suspension of payments for, quote, credible allegations of fraud. Now, I have to quote that one because I've received so many letters uh, from ZPICS, and I expect to get these from UPICS, that they suspect credible allegations of fraud as a basis for their investigation, um, when about 95% of their investigations and audits never turn into fraudulent conduct. Number five, oversight of financial policies. Federal will oversee state plans, waivers, and financial management for grant making to the states. So basically, the outcome of a lot of this data and review by the UPIC on the Medicaid program is gonna be used to assess and affect the amount of federal funding allocated to individual state Medicaid programs. So it's a big deal for the Medicaid programs in states. Number six, uh, strengthen Medicaid integrity. Federal and state auditors will share data, coordinate audits, and collaborate with state and federal law enforcement agencies. Uh, We'll sink more into this later, but one of the important things to understand is that, um, you know, Basically, this third-party contractor is going to take CMS data, compare Medicaid data, and run the show on this review, and then basically is going to talk to Medicaid and say, hey, we think these lines, these issues line up, and this is where you should be looking at them on the Medicaid claims. All right, implementation of the UPIC. Uh, The work completed by the ZPICs and PSCs will be phased out. Um, I still have ZPIC work going on in one zone while we're waiting for UPICs to begin in another. Um, And we say two to three years. That's just an approximation for how the evolution of these contracts go across the country. Um, To date, neither CMS nor UPICs have released specific timeframes, but we do have implementation because of the cases I'm getting um, that confirm it. Uh, Midwest is already active. We do have uh, one UPIC uh, by Safeguard in um, the New England area, and, and so we know that they are getting active. Now, third bullet on this slide, uh, from current experience with ZPICs, the volume of new investigations appear to have dwindled um, to the extreme outliers while the contractors are ramping up for the new new UPIC role. Um, We saw a real downtick in ZPIC activity towards the end of last year, uh, but we've already seen a significant upswing in UPIC uh, through the start of 2018. The impact of UPICs, Um, despite UPIC unification, CMS will continue with other audit programs, the RACs, the QIOs. Uh, Here's the main point of the UPIC program from the provider side. The, The unification of this review is going to basically put all federal payers and that revenue at risk at the same time. So Medicare, Medicaid, supplemental, military plans, TRICARE, VA, anything that's got federal funding as a part of the payment or as a part of the administration is subject to the UPIC contract. That is pretty frightening for practices that live in a low income and retirement area. Um, here, Here in the Southeast, you know, we we have a very high retirement and low income base for patients. And so for some of my practices, you know, that's 70, 80% of their practice. And if you got a payment suspension on 70% of your revenue, that could be the end of a practice. All right, what to expect. Uh, We've already begun to see the UPICs operate in the Midwest. Um, that's advanced med and they're following pretty much the same MO so far. Um, they have small initial records requests for probing issues. In other words, the, the data miner reviews a pattern and then hands it to an investigator and says, go get me a sample. all right?" And so we get, you get a probe request. It is really important that you understand why they requested those records on the probe level. If they get confirmation after a review of those probes, then you're going to get a larger sample, all right, which will support stratified samples and extrapolations. So I know we've seen a lot about the statistical extrapolation process with the racks over the years. The ZPics use this all the time, and we actually see that practice just growing stronger with the UPICS and if you look in the Medicare integrity manual it'll take you through all the fine-tuned details but the bottom line is they can get a numeric amount of records find an error rate and then extrapolate that error rate over the entire universe of six years which is the maximum of their look back period and say you owe all of that back that's pretty frightening now, the other thing that they do is uh, office raids, I call them, um, the the UPICs, I'm sure, because they're the same companies and the same people, uh, will be showing up unannounced at practices and with letters asking for medical records, interviewing providers, interviewing patients, um, pretty much as if they were the police or the FBI. And, and I have to tell you that the Medicare Integrity Manual, doesn't have those abilities in there. Um, So, you know, you've got to know that you have legal rights if they show up. All right, Um, one very big development, not related to the UPIC, but uh, worth noting as a part of this presentation, is that uh, there's something called uh, the 60-day rule that has happened, and I do believe more and more that the UPIC will be a part of this, uh, but currently, it uh, everybody knows about this, and we have a new application of why the 60-day rule on overpayments is so important. All right, so ACA uh, required that all CMS providers uh, identify and return overpayments within 60 days. The reasonable diligence standard, all right, is is basically What uh, CMS has determined is the amount of time you have to figure out you have an overpayment and what it is. So a provider that is deemed to have identified an overpayment when the provider has or should have, through the exercise of due diligence, determined that the provider received an overpayment and quantified the amount of the overpayment. Uh, CMS has pretty much stated consistently that six months is the maximum from the time of discovery. Um, So six months from when you figure out you've got an overpayment, you have to quantify it, and then you have 60 days to return the overpayment. Why is that so important? Because in March of last year, The overpayments retained after 60 day deadline are considered reverse false claims. And so I do a whole lot of false claims defense once in a while, false claims prosecution, uh, when it comes to healthcare billing. Well, reverse false claims was a broadening of the regulation that applied the improper retention of an overpayment to false claims liability. And what does that mean? So I gave you a little math, math problem here to explain it. Um, penalties can be imposed between currently $5,500 and $11,000 per claim plus treble damages, that's three times for the total amount of the overpayment. Here's an example. So, if you had an overpayment with totaling $5,000, that could be $550,000 in penalties and $15,000 in damages. So, improperly holding a $5,000 overpayment past 60 days from quantification could result in six hundred or five hundred and sixty five thousand dollars being paid to the government that's a big deal so that this is why it's really important that we have a process in place for identification and investigation and returning of overpayments All right, on the private payer side, um, I just mentioned them quickly as we look at transitioning into some of the fundamentals and techniques to help prevent audits um, because they have some similarities. Uh, The private payers are are getting more and more sophisticated each year in their auditing and reviews. Um, Now, as we know, private payers' uh, medical and billing policies can be different than CMS or can default to CMS policy, Uh, particularly for any of my office managers, compliance managers, anybody in the billing arena that's out there, um, you have to know whether you have an express provision on on a service for coverage or if it defaults to CMS standard, Uh, because that can dramatically change what is covered and what is not. Number two, audits are conducted in a similar fashion to CMS with uh, statistical outliers are identified. So there's data miners inside the private payers that do the same thing. They look for trends. Um, Private payers have special investigation units, SIUs, all right? Now, if you ever get a letter that says SIU on it, that's the private payer equivalent of UPIC. All right, that's their fraud and abuse division within their audit team. All right, that is not just errors and omissions. An SIU is specifically designed to see if there is fraud, all right? And they do report to state agencies or federal agencies and they cross-report to other payers. All right, every payer has its own unique overpayment appeal process. So if you do get an overpayment, Um, Unlike Medicare, which has one uniform uh, process or Medicaid for your state, um, if you have 10 other payers that you're credentialed with in your state, they each have their own administrative process. Um, Very important side note is that if you ever get in a position with a significant overpayment and you think you're going to litigate with the payer, you must complete the administrative appeal process to preserve your right. Um, most every state out there has what's called an exhaustion of administrative remedies provision, which means you have to try to resolve the problem with the payer through their process before you can you have standing to bring a legal claim. All right, let's talk about something you can do about all this scariness. all right so <laughs> most important, be proactive Uh, the more and more I talk to providers is that you cannot bury your head in the sand you must develop a plan to educate yourself all right so rise to the level of scrutiny Um, and and so this is so important because you know I, I know that you know doctors out there didn't go to med school you know to understand coding and compliance however an auditor only knows how good a doctor is by what's on the paper and comparing that to the claim that was presented to get paid for what's on the paper. So, you know, if the EMR is very well documented, lines up correctly with the claim, that looks like the best provider to an auditor. So, make sure, all right, that you are rising to the level of scrutiny. Uh the unification of all federally funded uh, payers into a single review is kind of an exponential rise in risk uh, in these types of situations. Okay, here's some compliance strategies, all right? Compliance team, all right? So uh, whether whether this is down to the uh, the single provider practice with two people on staff, you are the compliance team or my hospitals who have got a big robust compliance team, um, you have to have a plan, all right? You must have a compliance officer, CMS mandates it. Even if you're the little single provider, that means you're the compliance officer. Um, And you must have reporting duties, all right? You gotta make sure everybody's fully educated. If, If I identify this problem, who do I inform? What's our process for that? And you need to have a process for both federal and private payer reimbursement. A compliance plan. Um, every compliance plan, which is now a requirement to that it be a living plan by CMS, which means it cannot be uh, a compliance plan that you downloaded off the Internet that hasn't changed in five years. All right, so all my private practices out there that there's a compliance plan gathering dust in the back room, that won't do it. You that will end up being a noose by which you hang yourself if a, an investigator ever gets it um, It must be a living plan, which means it has to have everybody's names and duties in the plan All right, it's you have to educate new providers new staff on what the plan is and what their jobs are um, And and this is really important because this is one of the items that these investigators for the UPIC pick are allowed to request so beyond charts and claims, they're allowed to get to request a copy of your compliance plan because it's required by regulation. Um, and this compliance plan is broad. You know, it, it includes, you know, how to update coverage guidelines from CMS, billing and coding protocols, you know, staff hiring and training on those protocols. What are your documentation guidelines? And obviously HIPAA and tech. Really important really important are internal audits you your compliance team must make sure that you are performing periodic and random audits of patient records billing documentation codes and and provider signatures and you've got to be comparing those with the EOBs um, so that you make sure you know hey are my doctors you know getting lazy all right or do I have an uh, inexperienced biller who is improperly coding what my doctors are doing? If you internally audit, then you can go through the identification and self-disclosure process for an overpayment back to a MAC, a Medicare Administrative Contractor, and, and you won't be subject to liability. Or, and you, it also will take you off the radar for a UPIC because they'll see an overpayment disclosure and say, hey, this person is self-auditing which is a huge weapon against becoming a target. All right, external audits. Um, I highly recommend uh, that hiring a third-party expert to conduct an annual or semi-annual baseline, um, which includes a chart and coding audit, and, and make sure if you do that, you must take the advice and implement it. I've had a number of cases where practices had a third-party um, audit got findings with a bunch of problems and then did nothing about it for a year, two years. And that's not subject to attorney client privilege in most third party cases and that's discoverable. And basically the government got a copy of that and said, "Look, here's notice. You got advice from this from this auditor and you didn't follow it, which means you're ignoring the advice of a professional and you kept billing wrong and getting money. All right, that is the basis that they could assert criminal liability. All right, tracking. Tracking is so simple and I don't know why even major healthcare providers don't do this more often. Tracking is making sure that all payer document requests and reimbursement denials are tracked to detect and correct problems. Uh, Before they rise to the level of external review by an auditor and and we work with payers all over the country in in lots of different audit situations So much that we can tell you on basically a frequency basis You know if you're if you get a request that looks like this from payer a and you get another one within six months that looks like this and has a little more volume of records request we work with their audit teams so much i can pretty much tell you hey you got 2 months till this is going to happen so tracking what's going on you know understanding what services is the auditor looking at you don't get a records request for no reason figure out the reason why they want to look at the records why do they want to look at the billing all right normally there is something there you know e- either either there is an error made or you're anomalous and you need to really tighten up your documentation to make sure you can withstand the review. This is the hardest one. For all my private practices out there, the hospitals are a little better at this, um, but compliance enforcement. So despite providers' chagrin with compliance, uh, it's more necessary than ever for them to take time to participate in development and training for the compliance plan staff as well as providers must have real and apparent consequences for failure to adhere including additional training mandatory observation and escalation proceedings Um, it doesn't matter how much you like a provider John or Jill um, if they refuse to document accurately they are putting your practice at risk and if they if they don't have consequences and refuse to improve uh, they are a very substantial risk to your practice and you probably you may not want those providers in your practice all right okay we're moving on here a couple more billing and coding all right hiring certified and experienced billing and coding experts to manage and monitor payer policies and billing practice is more essential than ever Um, i have to tell you having dealt with thousands of different types of practices all over the country that the level of knowledge and skill in the coding arena is very broad. Um, the the brand new coder um, will be very lost in an extraordinary complex arena if they are asked to prov- to help with coding in an arena that they don't have experience or training. So it is Vital that you make sure you've got somebody at the helm who really understands coding for your type of practice proper documentation um, Make sure that you provide sufficient descriptions for the patient's complaints diagnosis and Treatments in the medical record ensure that all service are billed uh, Are properly accounted for in patient medical records and I can't tell you the number of times that that auditors have just beaten up my clients on rinky-dink things, like you know, lab results were not a part of the 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 record, or you know, there was a scan taken not included in production, or one thing was a repetitive issue because the EHR had too many macros, and and auditors are looking to pick apart those records. So you got to make sure that it tells the story completely and clearly. Now, spending the time, which has re- always been my recommendation, is your, to conduct quarterly compliance reviews, um, is always worth it. So your compliance team must review all payer coverage policies because your coverage position for a single service is open to change on frequency or requirements at any time, across all your payers, according to each of their individual standards, and, and you have to be able to keep up with that. It's not like CMS's standard is going to work for Humana, Cigna, Blue Cross, you know any of the others. They each have discretion. So you have to make sure that you invest the time and stay current. And you, you've got to research, you know, are we current? So, my recommendation is that once a quarter, the compliance team meet, um, review all your payer policy standards, conduct your new new research, make sure you're current, so that if you do make a mistake, which every practice makes mistakes, you at least cut that exposure period down to one quarter, all right? because. Most of the practices that I deal with, let an error go on for a year, two years, three years, and now it's a very big financial issue. If they had cut that down to one quarter, they could have fixed the error themselves. And so this is really important. All right, Uh, if you have an audit, communication. Um, Always cautious, but open communication with investigators is essential. Don't ignore them. Make sure that you understand why they're there and what they're asking for. That doesn't mean you give them everything, but you need to talk to them enough to understand why they showed up and what they're investigating. Um, self audit. So one of the greatest weapons we have in defending is clients who agree to self audit. If an, if an auditor or an investigator showed up, they didn't do it for no reason. Let's figure out what the problem was. Let's self audit back over the universe. And let's let's offer our overpayment finding, you know, if we're in CMS, let's offer it back to the MAC and set up a payment plan with the MAC. Because, you know, this independent auditor, their objective is to find as much recovery as possible. So they're going to deny your claims for every and any reason. Well, okay, maybe we had some poor documentation, but that doesn't mean that the services weren't medically necessary or provided okay. We, we don't want all those claims denied. So self-audit you've got a duty to do it anyway, might as well beat the auditor to the punch. All right, corrective action plans. Uh, whether an, an auditor asks for it or not, you must put together a thorough corrective action plan and give that back to the auditor say, hey, listen, these were innocent errors, here's what we we learned, here's what we're gonna do. Um, disclose the plan, say, we, we want to fix the problem, we wanna stay in good standing with CMS or any other payer. Um, open the door to self-correction, uh, that's really important. And education and training, all right? So you need to implement corrective action plans. So this is you know, updating your compliance plan, making sure you train your staff and your providers, um, providing evidence of clean new claims and charts. Uh, those are a big piece of a corrective action plan, you know, basically evidence that you're doing what's in the document. Now, review your compliance failure history. Every type of medical entity out there has some some failures and you want to make sure that when you do have a failure, do a root cause analysis. Take the time to figure out how did this start? How do we fix it? How do we prevent it from happening in the future? All right, appeals. If you're ever in an appeal situation uh, for a significant overpayment, especially in the federal arena, it can be very difficult because you will be uh, appealing large overpayments on a claim by claim basis and it, it can be difficult. But you gotta make sure that you understand all your rights, you cannot miss a deadline because um, you, you you may be out of luck. Um, whether No matter who it is, make sure you find experienced counsel to work with. And anything you can do to expedite appeals to stop recoupment is really important because once recoupment starts, it is very hard to get it to stop. Now, on the Omaha, the Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals uh, process, we are up to an extraordinary thousand day wait to talk to an administrative law judge. So my recommendation is let's do everything we can to stay out of that appeals process. In summary, um, the the U picks are here all right and and if you're in a zone you just need to tighten it up tighten the screws implement some of the recommendations here and make sure that you are ready um, make sure you are identifying and returning all overpayments properly uh, reverse false claims is very real um, it's alive and well and so Avoid audits by ramping up your compliance. Uh, make sure you understand your policies and implement those. And, and you've worked really hard for your business or you are a part of an amazing uh, healthcare system. Make sure you're a part of defending it. Because, I mean, I'll tell you the payers are really hurting financially and they are becoming very, very aggressive. All right, um, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak today. And uh, so I'm going to turn the floor back over.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much. That definitely was uh, very, very informative. Thank you so much, Stephen. Um, That was a lot of information, and we did have some questions come in. So um, the first question that came in was, how does a UPIC determine a practice or provider is an outlier?
1: Well, you know, I touched on it briefly, but um, you know, outliers are basically determined uh, on a comparative basis. So, if you ever get a CBR, a comparative billable report, uh, for your your NPI or your practice that you're a part of, uh, the data miners keep a you know set of claims, services by region, by type of provider, and they do a comparative analysis, and and that's the number one way you stick out to them, which is either, you know, you, you provide services the exact same to everybody, when everybody else who's the same type of provider as you has, you know, a rolling change in services, depending on what is medically necessary, or you provide one service dramatically more than an, all your peers. and That doesn't mean that you necessarily are, are committing, you know, healthcare fraud. Um, I have lots of wonderful clients who fit the patterns that are targeted, but it's because of the unique nature of their practice.
0: Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, and then uh, we had some questions concerning... Um, Office raids. Uh, so, so uh, I'll um, boil it down to to one question. So, what are practices' rights when a UPIC does an office raid?
1: All right. Well, this is extremely important because uh, I have literally had investigators from ZPICS and now UPICS uh, show up unannounced and assert authority that they had all these rights and. The bottom line is they don't. They are not, the, they're not police and they're not the FBI. Um, the Medicare Integrity Manual gives you a right to 30 days advance notice for production of all documentation. You do not have to uh, allow them to walk through your practice and take pictures. Uh, you do not have to allow them to interview any providers or patients. Um, you always have a right to counsel. And and so it's very important that you understand those rights because I mean the Z PICs historically performed hundreds of these unannounced visits or AKA office raids all across the country every single year when they're in operation. So I'm expecting nothing less and maybe more under the UPIC contracts. <laughs>
0: So could could you walk us through what usually happens? I mean, usually there's a front desk receptionist, right? So what would yeah. what would usually happen when so would they usually stop and the front receptionist would say, "Well, hold on a minute while I get my office manager," or what would have would usually happen?
1: Yeah. So, yes, um, you know, a couple people um not really in uniform, but sometimes with identification will walk through the door. Um, they'll provide a letter that it says, you know, hey, we have authority from Medicare to be here and to investigate, and we need to talk to this doctor or these people, and we're not leaving till we talk to them. And and they give you a long list. Hey, we want these 30 charts, and and we're going to take pictures of the practice area, um, and they intentionally plan two-day visits whenever they're on site. So. If a doctor's not there the day they show up, they'll show up the next day and say, hey, we're going to be here in the morning. Make sure that your doctor's there, your owner's there, um, your staff members, and they'll come back in the next morning. And I can't tell you the number of times that the saving grace was the doctor said, you know, I need to talk to somebody who understands what's going on here. And I got a phone call and was able to basically get the investigators on the phone and ask them to leave because they didn't have the right to do that. Right. Um, so, so understanding what, <laughs> that, that you don't have to just lay down and submit everything to them uh, that day because the number one problem is that when, when people answer questions in haste or produce documents in haste, they don't tell the whole story very well. You know, They, they produce half the records, so all the documents, all the claims get denied in the review. Um, Or people are afraid and and they, they, you know, they trip up on their thoughts and they don't provide the best answers. So, you know, everybody is entitled to the opportunity to prepare themselves for these type of reviews and they've got that legal right.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, Okay, so we had another question here. Uh, When does the six months under the reasonable due diligence standard um, start for reverse false claims?
1: And that's a great question. So in all of CMS's, you know, disclosures of the reasonable diligence standard, we know that the deadline for the 60 days to return the overpayment is from the date you quantify the overpayment. You know, the the gray area of when it started is, is subjective a lot of times. So let's say I'm, you know, I, I'm a billing and compliance officer for a healthcare entity. And I notice, oh, this overpayment, you know, report from one of my w- one of my subordinates came in last week. So does my six months start when my subordinate got that information and thinks there's an overpayment, or from when I did it? And everything that we've got on the government's opinion um, is is whenever you can identify, you have a legitimate problem and it's confirmed. So if the first person said, hey, I think this might be a problem, I don't know for sure, and the second person looked it over, reviewed it, and said, yes, this claim was paid improperly, then you have six months from confirmation of some measure of an overpayment to investigate it and figure out what the full amount is, and then you have
0: 60 days to return it. Okay, thank you. Uh, okay, very good. Well, um, thank you so much, Stephen. We really appreciate you being here. Uh, do you have any more uh, final thoughts for us or any bits of a final advice for us at the moment?
1: You know, the the most important is you know, stay current, um, stay educated. Um, if you are one of the, if depending on where you're at and what type of uh, practice arena, the the UPICs are not just for traditional fee for service. All right. They are rolling into all the different types of value based payment models um, and they get a lot more complex in those arenas. Um, but it is it's a very broad swath. You know, they are looking at cost reports. They're looking at lots of different um aspects. Now what we don't have first hand experience on yet is you know, how Medicaid is going to be uh, integrating into the this analysis, because so far the UPICs are still running on CMS data, um, but we do know it's going to get pretty complicated soon. Um, so my highest recommendation to people is, you know, make the time for education and to stay current. So, and I appreciate again, the opportunity to speak.
0: All right. Well, we appreciate you being here and, uh, Wanted to uh, remind our attendees also to, um, to check uh, check out First Healthcare Compliance as well because we have a lot of um, opportunities for um, a lot of things that you were talking about as well. Um, we have um, internal um, self audit checks. Um, we have a lot of things that you were talking about too. So um, you can use the contact information for Steven there. Um, You have his his contact information there. Um, If you have additional questions, uh, you can send them to us and we'll forward them on to um, Stephen Bittinger. And then uh, you can register for future webinars or you can also request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com. You can also call us at 888-543-4778. Thank you again, Stephen, for joining us and thank you attendees and uh, thank you.